Welcome back to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and along with me is Jonathan Pritchett. And today we are going back to hell. We're forgiven, we're shown mercy and grace, and our punishments probably aren't as harsh as they should be, even within this lifespan. Do skeptics bring objections to the case? Of course they do. What's going on with you today? <laughs> they just don't like it. They don't like it that God is just and he has every right as creator to do what he will. God is the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. Of now y'all having to look at our faces, which for that I apologize. Okay, today I'd like to begin with the public service announcement. This is from Regurgitating Augustine Ministries. As expected, the list keeps growing on why no Rethinking Hell representative will accept our debate proposition. About a week ago, one of the Rethinking Hell representatives informed me that they are busy with scheduled conflicts, and now Chris Date has made it known that he will not debate me because I do not consider him a brother. Imagine that. Is this what men have become today? He won't accept a debate unless the opponent calls him a brother. Well, he won't debate Christianity unless his opponent calls him a brother. Um, good grief. If the men that have debated Chris in the past have affirmed him as a brother, shame on those compromisers. It is sad that Chris is using childish and unmanly excuses not to debate. This is how you don't act when you're engaging in dialogue with other Christians about various perspectives. Since many of you may not know what Regurgitating Augustine Ministries is, it is the group that challenged and debated Leighton Flowers and Jonathan Pritchett last November, and now they're calling out the Rethinking Hell people. And We're not a part of the Rethinking Hell people, and this is how much it bothers us. Right. It's it's silly, and if we would have some kind person string together a video from our uh, debate, you will see what unmanly and childish is all about if we were to string together just about everything that our opponents in that debate had said during the debate because they were childish. This is childish, and I have no reason to, to doubt that Chris is doing... Uh, exercising the better part of wisdom to avoid uh, childish and unmanly Facebook posturing. Now, yeah. on with the show. Yeah, so uh, that's your public, public service announcement out of the way. Uh, let me uh, go ahead and say that today we are going to be talking about the other two. If, you, if this is your first episode of Trinity Radio, this is the second part of a two-part series on the nature of hell. And in the first series, we kind of did all the preliminary stuff, and we talked about what is called the traditional perspective, which is also termed the eternal... Con I keep saying eternal. <laughs> eternal. The eternal conscious torment perspective, which has been held by most of uh, Christianity for most of church history, but yes. not all of church history, no. and not and, and the and the bit that that it's not that we're the reason I'm saying not all is the is a chunk of the first bit. So that's relevant to uh, consider if we're going to be fair to conditionalism, as we'll discuss first, right. and uh, and manly and and and, and non childish about discussing um, their views. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
Dr. Leighton Flowers said that he thought when it comes to the inclusivism stuff that he's been discussing lately that we there's 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 the kitty table and there's the adults table. Yeah, the kitty table the, is the people on the internet like this who throw kitty tantrums uh, who are also willing to do it in churches and embarrass themselves and their hosts. Um, but at the grown-ups table, there are people who disagree with these views that can all sit down at the grown-ups table, like being manly, uh, and not um, scream childish tantrums at one another over these differences. They can discuss them because these are ideas. And since, to my knowledge, no ecumenical council has decried this view that matters, um, this is um, not any sort of damnable heresy. Um, and Facebook councils don't represent global Christendom. So um, we can look at this and we don't have to agree with it or we might agree with it and it's okay. We're just discussing what does the Bible say and of course right. people are going <clears> to <throat> differ on that. Yeah, so um, if you hear little noises, it might be my computer. The first thing I want to do on this show though, and, and I want to tell you, I appreciate so much those of you who have given to our Patreon account. Uh, just yes, this will be of, the last episode with uh, yes, Neil. Neil's yes, we're leaving gonna, the building. We're, we're going to get there. Yeah. So just a couple of weeks ago, we started a Patreon account, and we set a goal of $500 per month. Now, technically, we have reached that goal in just two weeks. However, a chunk of that is not a per month uh, amount. There was uh, one particular person who gave a, a, a very sizable sum of money. And he said, I can't do this every month, but I'm doing it now. But if you strung the sizable amount he gave out over the months, it was several months of $100 donations, which yes. means that Robert Gillier, is it yeah. Gillier? Robert Gillier is the new proud owner yes. of Neil the Fish. We said that this statue of, I don't know if they can see yeah, it. Yeah, grab, grab Neil. Statue. We're going to give him a place of prominence for this episode. Here's since, Neil, since, uh, and uh, Neil was named for Neil deGrasse Tyson when we were doing an episode about Neil deGrasse Tyson, and uh, we called him Neil, and he has sat through many a Trinity webinar uh, while we're teaching our students in the background at the older campus that we used to have, right. and so he's just become a beloved part of the show that I'll be pleased to never see again, <laughs> and so uh, we're, we're looking forward to sending Neil to you, And what's Robert amazing Gilliard. about Neil is we have no idea where it came from. No, we do not know Neil's backstory. That's true. And since he looks rather old, this probably came, this could have been a, a Tom Rogers or a John Brooke. It's very possible that the founder of Trinity back in 1969 had, in had Neil in his office. We have so, no idea where he came uh, from. You can have that. We need to take a picture of Neil before we send yeah, him. Yeah, we'll the, do the whole in memorandum. Yeah. You know. yeah. <laughs> so, so Robert Gillier, we thank you so much. And then there are some others. Also, William Schroeder um, uh, pledging a, a, re, a reasonably large amount that yeah. I uh, have never pledged to a podcast before. <laughs> uh, and so we appreciate that, William Schroeder. Uh Armand Jacob Paulson, I hope I said that right. Uh, John E. Miller uh, Jr. Uh, Kurt Jaros of Veracity uh, Hill Veracity and Hill. Apologetics 315. And Ernest George Strauss, who I think was the first one to give uh, yeah. to Trinity Radio. And then Jonah Krylo, or Krylo, I'm sorry, I, I'm not sure. Krylo, I'm going to go with Krylo. Yeah. It sounds more Star Wars. And if you have five bucks, give it to Brad. That was a, I had just, the, the most delightful conversation with Kurt Jaros on, on his show. Um, he is a f phenomenal 
human being. I mean, just the nicest as they get. So yeah, I like Kurt. I, I didn't know Kurt even knew who I was, so it was good. <laughs> it was good to know that he did. Yeah. Um, now, all that be, this is not going to be a big commercial for Patreon. The only reason I brought it up was to thank these people, and and I'll tell you that even though we met our goal, as I said, a portion of that is a one-time gift, and so we still do need people in order to get the equipment we need and do the things that we want to do and, and the promotion, putting out ads, trying to get more people aware of the show. Uh, we still do need more money. Yeah. Well, we just <laughs> so, need to increase our goal too. And a guy that's here advising us on institutional development this week at Trinity said, if you need money, here's what you do. You ask people for money. So anyway, uh, but we are again, not televangelists. And so we're not going to go on about this forever. No dig uh, about my hair. This, this is time. not going to be eternal conscious torment begging you for Patreon <laughs> money. So, but thank you from the depths of our heart. Thank you right. so, so much. And yes, I have one. I did not even believe that we would have, I, I thought a couple of people would give $5. That's about all I expected. I'm and, upset that my mom hasn't given. Yeah, well, yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> I, I don't want anyone to feel like they are required to give. Now, I know Except you feel that mom, way. Yes. But, uh, but I don't want anyone to feel that way. I want you to enjoy Trinity Radio. However, I will say that the people that I thought might give, not that they're required to, have not given. And the people that, some of these people, I, I didn't even know their name, and they've given. So uh, that's We telling. don't do it's, this it's for amazing. the money, though. No, if we did, we'd be... I mean, we, we did this for years for that. The we just yeah. want to make this better. Yeah. Um, and we're too broke to spend our own money on making it better. And it was a good time to do this because the hell episode really took off. So, yeah. uh, so, all right, so let's get into it now and let's begin talking about this and try not to bring up any more about rephrasing Anakin ministries. Okay. Let's just leave that alone. All right. Uh, so that's a good, that's a good, you know why I like that one? Why? The Phantom Menace and Anakin reminds me of them. Because he's a little boy. Yes. Yeah. But they're not bringing balance to anything. All right. So uh, we're going to begin by talking. So to recap, previously on Trinity Radio, we discussed, the, as I said, the traditional view of hell, uh, trying to be fair to it, laying out all of the, uh, well, the, the most popular biblical data in favor of it, and looking at both sides of that and everything. And we apparently did a great high wire act because the folks over at Rethinking Hell thought we did a pretty good job. And I haven't been called out by any traditionalists that we didn't do a good job. Uh, so, hey, you know. Uh, and by traditionalists, you mean the, yeah, well, traditional view of hell. The, from our viewers, they're probably one and the same. But yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but traditional, uh, the traditional view of hell. All right, the conditionalism perspective no, also. No, I did get asked, like, why are you not, you know, I was asked, why are you still on the fence? And, and this is a good time, before you get into that, to, to make another point. It's okay to think about things. And it's okay to put things in the undecided column. You don't have... Look, there's a Nicene Creed, there's an Apostles' Creed, and there's an Athanasian Creed, and then whatever other things that you got, those things are... Hold fast to those. But there are other issues that it is okay to think about and not have to commit yourself to and no, you're not going to go to whatever version of hell is true for not making a decision and saying, you know, I'm going to I don't, consider I don't these ideas. I don't think that's it. I don't think, yeah. I think they would agree with you because I know who asked you that. And I don't, I think they would agree with you. I think instead what they were saying was you guys basically laid out a case that is completely compatible and sympathetic to our position. It seems like, you know, enough now that we would expect that you had already clicked over. Well, okay. Well, it's not the worst that we 
think you have to make a decision. It just it sounded to them like we already had made a oh, decision. Oh, you mean what we didn't do is burn straw men and all this other stuff because we're educators. Okay, well, uh, yeah, that's that's why that that's came off the way it did. It's because we are in the education business for first and foremost. We, this is a seminary, and this is a seminary. Trinity College of the Bible Theological Seminary is the best seminary in the world, and it is a seminary where we're not tied to any particular denomination. So we get Calvinists, we get Arminians, we get uh, Methodists, Baptists, Pentecostal, Assembly of God, Charismatic. We, we get a lot of different variety of people, Lutherans, uh, more and more Lutherans because they have to get MDivs in order to be ordained, uh, don't want to get ordained in a Lutheran seminary or get their MDiv in a Lutheran seminary that'll cost them buckets and buckets and buckets of money. So we have a lot of Lutherans and Presbyterians who come here as well so they can get their ordination after receiving an MDiv from us, which will help them because Lutherans will send them to a church that won't pay them uh, even half of what they spend on their education. So, All right. We're, um, yes, Trinity is awesome. Please come here. We're educators. And we don't freak so, out over uh, talking about sometime. different things. Yeah. We set up straw men. All right. Okay. We got all that. Can we talk about conditionalism now? Okay. Well, I was not going on as long as you were about the Patreon thing, and I was plugging our seminary. You're doing a great job. Fine. You're doing a great okay, job. Now get to the... All right. So well, you were worried that we wouldn't have enough left to say to fill. Oh, so you're so trying to fill it up? I'm okay, trying to, I'm trying to help you, man. Well, well, here's okay. So we do have three big things to talk about: conditional immortality, uh, the evangelical universalist position, and then we're going to talk about some practical issues related to evangelism. Because, as m many of you may know, our brand is evangelistic apologetics, and this would be, I guess, in the realm of evangelistic theology. Uh, but yeah. we're gonna we're gonna talk about how you can use some of these principles evangelistically, whatever your perspective might be. All right, so the somewhat crassly, as I said on the last episode, this is sometimes termed the annihilationism perspective. And there is a fallacy in uh, logic that comes up when someone wants to bemoan conditional immortality or annihilationism, and that is to attempt to tie it to some a group of believers that, that are either heretical or that you obviously don't want anything to do with. And so as a result, uh, by just mentioning the name of, say, the Seventh-day Adventists or uh, somebody like Jehovah's that, Witnesses. or the Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever, that somehow just by, or the Christadelphians or somebody like, just by mentioning these names, it'd be like, oh yeah, that's their position. Well, okay, that does just because you have linked a particular view to a group that we might not want to identify with, that doesn't mean that this particular view that they may hold is right or wrong, right? right. It's just... The, the Catholics believe in Trinity, and you believe in Trinity. Does that make you Catholic? Yeah, it's a guilt by association fallacy. Right. It's, or a, it's, and it and a poisoning work. the well right. fallacy, you know? So uh, so we need to we need to bear You have this to believe a mind. whole bunch of other things in order to be a Jehovah's Witness. Right, right. And, uh, th and those whole other things are like, ontologically related to who you think God is and who you think Christ is, and that's outright heretical. And what you think Scripture is. Yeah, and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't register with this particular issue. Yeah. It's like the Trinity, Catholics believe it, Eastern Orthodox believe it, Protestants believe it, but just because you believe it doesn't make you one of those other Yeah, things. I was in Ireland uh, uh, last fall, and someone during a Q&A time asked me uh, about... And I didn't even really know where he was going. Now I know where he's going, but it's not even worth talking about. But he was asking, should we ever believe anything that the Jesuits believed? 
And I was like, well, um, I believe in Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I said, I, I said the Jesuits believe that there is a God who's the creator of all things. <laughs> I said, right there, I believe something the Jesuits believe, right? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, but so so I, I think when people bring that sort of stuff up, and Molinists, and, yeah, Molinism, <laughs> it can't, yeah. Uh, so so uh, let's move on now and, and get into it. Conditionalism is called such, as I said in the last episode, because of the perspective. So broadly speaking, the thing that people identify as memorable about this position is that it's the idea that after, after if someone who's going to go to hell uh, will go to hell, remember all three of these positions affirm that there is a, a hell, but th this person will go to hell. Some views, I think, just believe that they just die then, and some views believe they suffer commensurate to their crimes, whatever those might have been. So like I said in the last episode, if you... This is this is very oblique, but like if you killed three people, you murdered three people, maybe you suffer like uh, three life sentences plus whatever the rest of the sins in your life, and then you just die, you know. And so that's and when we say die, it, we do not mean uh, you have everlasting life, just a horrible one. We mean you die, like you don't, you're not conscious anymore. Right. All right. So so that is the conditionalism view, the annihilationist view, and the reason it's called conditionalism is because of the idea that immortality is conditional upon you becoming a Christian, repenting, trusting right. Jesus, being born again. Otherwise, you're not just intrinsically immortal. And the reason this distinction is important is because uh, some people who hold to the traditional view believe that one of the reasons you're going to be in hell forevermore, uh, conscious, is because there's something innate or intuitive about the, uh, or intrinsic, I guess I should say, about the soul that it cannot be destroyed. So... That's why. That's why you'll be there. Right. The soul is innately immortal, that God constructed the soul to exist in perpetuity, unaided, which, no, I mean, everything that's created is dependent on Jesus holding it together because in mm -hmm. him all things consist. Um, but they would say, you know, the, the belief that the soul is inherently immortal, which... Um, is interesting because there is a Bible verse that says immortality belongs to God alone, which is why it's conditional mm -hmm. on to those to whom that God wishes to give it. Those who seek for immortality, as it says in Romans 2, you know, mm -hmm. God is going to... First Timothy 6, 16, I yeah. think is the one you were thinking right. of. Right. And they will argue that because immortality is something that pertains only to God, it can only be something that God gives. And if, if you think immortality is tied to life, then life is what God gives, which will give you eternal life in perpetuity. But death is the antithesis of life, and there's no immortality there. There's no perpetual existence there. It is what it sounds like, death. Yeah. And that means complete <clears throat> non-existence. Yeah. So and the second death. So sure. so immortality is conditional. So this is called the conditional immortality view, right. um, or annihilationism. Um, a lot of people who don't know the term conditional immortality, I've even noticed a lot of like uh, theologians and stuff who don't know that conditional immortality means conditional immortality. That oh, you mean annihilationism? Yeah. So anyway, uh, their primary texts and I. I 
I suspect strongly that people are going to be like, yeah, but you didn't mention this or that. Well, I've got some more texts we're going to get to later, and there are probably <coughs> other texts out there that you would mention. So, But I'm just going to give a rundown here. Isaiah 66, 24, uh, 2 Kings 22, 17, Isaiah 17, 2 through 7, Isaiah 51, 8, Jeremiah 4, 4, Jeremiah 7, 20, Jeremiah 21, 12, Ezekiel 20, 47 through 48, Matthew 10, 28, Luke 16, 19 through 31, Romans 2, 8, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. Notable advocates of this position. Now, this is where I'd like some input from you because the notable ad advocates that I have down here are John R.W. Stott, Clark Pinnock, Greg Boyd, Roger Forster, John Winham, Michael Green, Edward William Fudge, Glenn Peoples, F.F. Um, and then I have F.F. I have Bruce as open to this issue, but it was unclear. And Ben Witherington III, I'm not sure his position on this. I, I have him down here as a notable advocate, but I think well, I remember reading somewhere. He, he contributed to, to the Rethinking Hell, um, uh, the, the book that Chris Date edited. Okay. Is that enough for us to determine that he's probably... I, I, I think that, well, his main thing is that uh, you shouldn't freak out about this. And, and I would suspect that he probably has his leanings that way, but I don't think that he is necessarily like advocate well if you want to know for sure just go to our comment stream on the trinity radio primetime discussion yeah. facebook group or where this may get posted on rethinking hell and someone will tell you okay yeah, I'm sure, sure. Uh, yeah i'm not clear <laughs> I, and that might be on ben witherington's part by design <laughs> yeah you know he might just be like well i mean this is what it is and it's fine um or like steve Gregg, he might say i'm agnostic on this right steve Gregg is Steve Gregg has said that he is agnostic on this position, but he thinks the least likely of the three views is the traditional uh, view. Right, which surprised me. Now, I was trying to, we've all were trying to prod him because we thought that he leaned towards... For those that don't know, over at Rethinking Hell, guess what? Ha ha ha, we got Steve Gregg at Trinity. He yeah. teaches some classes for and, us. And Steve Gregg largely convinced my wife of this view. Mm. Um, and And... So did Rethinking Hell. But Steve Gregg is a great person to embody this because his claim is you can read his book and come away not knowing what his position is. But he is. stands by that. He's like, I don't know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, it, and could, it, could be, it could be any of these. Now, he, you're right. He did say that the traditional view, and I think he said this in his published work too, yeah. is the least likely. Which to I my think, mind, the evangelical universalist right, is, is the least, least likely. To, to my mind, that's not even valid. But right. um, could be. I mean, I... I'd, I'm but, sure that if Steve was sitting here instead of Neil, he would have plenty to say about why. Right. Uh, or you could just read his book, All You Want to Know About Hell. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so there, there it is. Primary texts, notable advocates. By the way, uh, Ed Fudge, I just two days ago on your recommendation watched the film Hell and Mr. Fudge, which is free right now on Amazon Prime. If you're a primary. And right. really, really enjoyed it. What I did not know about Ed Fudge that made it all the more interesting. People are going to turn us off. We're going to ramble. Yeah. But the, what I did not know that I did find really interesting was that uh, Ed Fudge, the, the, the school that he was at where a lot of this kicked up to begin with at the beginning of the movie, is a Church of Christ school, and he was a Church of Christ preacher. Yeah. And so I used to pastor in an area that was staunchly Church of Christ. Now, if you're Church of Christ out there, there's a Max Lucado brand of Church of Christ that's not, you know, it's, it might as well be like, and here in Evansville, we've got, uh, we've got what's called the Christian church, which is kind of has some of the doctrinal perspectives of the church of Christ, except they have really contemporary music and they use instruments and all that kind of right. thing. So, so, but, but that's not the church of Christ. He was around, right. he was around the church of Christ. Like I was around. And uh, to think 
to get in trouble for just saying that Baptists and Presbyterians and other people like that were going to be in heaven and wherever God's got a son, I've got a brother. If that upset people, just buckle your pew belt, sister, because right. we're about to go somewhere with hell yeah. uh, that no Church of Christ I would have suspected would have wanted to go. So anyway, um, that's a good movie. You can go watch that. I don't think it had the incredible production value that, say, Case for Christ had, but it was pretty good. Um, all yeah, right. it, the, it was well acted, you know, contrary to most Christian films. So. Yeah. Okay, so examining conditionalism a little bit, there are several views that, well, all but one of these views is often carried along with conditional immortality, and one of the views on here, you find it sometimes, sometimes you don't. Uh the, the question of immortality, first of all, we've been talking about that a little bit. First Timothy 6.16 says that God uh, alone has immortality. Um, one of the reasons for thinking so is has to do with the tree in the Garden of Eden. Now, it's funny because most of my life, I think I just kind of, in reading the text on my own when preachers were preaching, I became aware that there's this tree of life in the garden. Mm -hmm. And uh, when preaching through the book of Revelation as a pastor, I maybe for the first time, really became aware that that tree of life, however you understand that tree, is there in uh, at the end of Revelation. On both sides uh, of the river. Yeah, on both sides of the river is the tree of life. There's 12 yeah. manner of fruits. And, and uh, all right. So, but all the, the one that gets all the attention and all the fanfare is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. Uh, but well, that's the one that messes us up. Two trees in the midst of the garden. Now, I've said this before on the podcast, but if you'll permit me, Dr. Pritchett, let me give a little bit of a reason that I know our Calvinist people that are, that are watchers and, and viewers and, and rethinking hell folks may not necessarily uh, be where I'm at, but just chill out, okay? Uh, but I think there's something to this story of choice with these two trees. I think, because mm -hmm. atheists often ask me, you know, why, why the, this tree, they only know about the one, why this tree in the garden, uh, it's like God setting people up for failure. Uh, if he did, this is so mythological. If he didn't want that, he didn't have to put that there and everything would have been fine. Well, here's the thing. Uh, and a compatibilist might say these things too, okay? But the idea is if you want real love, you've got to have the opportunity for real sacrifice. And in order to have the opportunity for real sacrifice and thereby real love, you've got to have a choice, right? It's not very much loving if I put a gun to my wife's head and, and force her to love me, right? So with the two trees in the garden, every day, uh, Adam and Eve had an opportunity to make a choice, whether to give themselves for the good of another and not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, but instead to eat of the tree of life. They had that choice every single day. Um, but you can't force someone to freely do all the right, uh, do exactly what you want for obvious reasons. Um, and so ultimately, uh, they, our original parents made the choice to eat of the knowledge of good and evil, and the rest is history. However, what's interesting about that is that once they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sin, we find out that, uh, well, Genesis 2.17 says, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. What we find out in Genesis chapter 3 is God, speaking amongst himself, <laughs> says, we've got to now get them out of the garden, otherwise they'll eat of the tree of life and live forever. That's interesting, isn't it? Eat of the tree of life and live forever. And then we get to Revelation and we find out, however you understand that eschatologically, there's this tree of life there. On and, both sides of the river. And both sides of the river. It almost seems like uh, your uh, immortality or your life depends on the eating of this tree. And so uh, these folks would say that eating of that tree or not eating of that tree determines whether you are immortal or not. Therefore... Right. 
immortality is not innate. Yeah, and whatever you think the, the symbolism, we're just using the symbols of the scripture. Right. If the tree is just Jesus, still, right. it still holds, right? Um, so uh, also 1 Timothy, as you mentioned, 6.16, I already just said that. Um, yeah, 1 Timothy 6.16 says, Who alone possesses immortality, talking about God, and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So God <clears throat> alone has immortality. Uh, yeah. Which means you don't, and I don't. Right. Now, you can take that Unless a you're in Jesus. Yeah, and you can take that a number of ways. I mean, a traditionalist person could say, um, well, that's right. We don't exist except by his will, right? But he just wills for the souls to perpetually exist. So it's not like an insurmountable slam dunk text, right? I mean, right. it does belong to God alone, and in Christ all things consist, and, and we just, God has designed souls that are, these are things that God wishes to continue to exist. In right. Perpetuity. That's I, right. Either in heaven or in uh, the lake of fire or hell or whatever. Right. Well said. So they could, yeah. So eternity for the lost, um, they would say, okay, so if you don't have everlasting life, um, you know, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have right. everlasting life. So you have two options, perishing or everlasting life. And the conditionalist would say, look, when the, the Bible means what it says. So now here's the interesting thing. There are certain perspectives that say, well, I take the Bible literally. Well, first of all, you should take the Bible seriously. Right. Uh, there are certain passages that are not to be taken literally. And if you take them literally, you end up with a physical God who is part of the creation he created. And he has and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and you have a, uh, a cube for the earth with angels at all four right. corners. God and all these a kind of space dragon. Right. You know, yeah, there's coming uh, a red dragon and all these kind of things. Yeah. So the, the, thing, the thing is... Um, well, but, and he flares his nostrils a lot. So, yeah. I mean, you just got settled down with the, I mean, when, when you read in the Old Testament, God goes, he's flaring his nostrils. So, yeah. I mean, it just, we, they, they don't translate it that way because probably wouldn't know, you know, the idiom. But in my hermeneutics class, I always tell them, take the Bible seriously, which means you'll take it literally when you need to, metaphorically when you need to. So Right. Yeah, and what I found about people who say take the, the, I take the Bible literally, like like go to Revelation and consider various eschatological views, regardless of what the view is, people take some parts uh, as imagery and some parts literally, right. and which parts you take as imagery or literally are going to, to some degree, determine your eschatology. And so uh, when you run into somebody who says, well, I take the whole Bible literally, okay, well, then you misunderstand the Bible. Right. And in fairness, our... Uh, those people will say, well, well, literally makes room for idiom and metaphor yeah. and all that kind of stuff, in which case you've disqualified it to death, so stop saying it. Right, so, so, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but take John 3.16, for example, the conditionalist, I've heard many of them say things like, well, look, when the Bible says perishing or everlasting life... Not perishing, take, perish. Yeah, perish or everlasting life, it's, take that literally. Yeah. Those are your options. Done. You perish it's, it's actually not perishing life. eternally, it's perish. Yeah. You're done. Yeah, and the same they would say for words like destruction. dead or destruction. You're right? destroyed, you okay. know. It's like, what, what more do you want? Jesus says, don't fear. Well, anyway, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, there are parallels for that. All right, so uh, end of conscious experience, they would say, because you're not immortal, yeah. then if you don't get the everlasting life, you die. You're not immortal. Okay. Uh, the fire of hell is to consume rather than to torture. Now, I do still think among uh, 
people who affirm conditional immortality, there are still the two views that the, the suffering that will be experienced in hell uh, before death is either fire or the fire is imagery for some other kind of punishment, but that whatever that is, it will consume. That was Ed Fudge's book, um, the, the fire. fire That Consumes, because it consumes, and by consuming, we're carrying with that yeah. the idea now, of... Now, what I found interesting is the eternal conscious torment people will will screen out torture from their perspective and say, well, it's mainly shame and separation and and sadness and sorrow and grief and gnashing of teeth and all that, but it's not painful and torturous. And some of the conditional immortality is like, yeah, it's violent, it's painful, it w you will be annihilated, and it yeah. do you don't go out in a very dainty way. Yeah, but uh, you know, a lot of the it's not it's not an injection <clears throat> like modern capital punishment. Right. But a lot of the a lot of the eternal conscious torment people would say, like you said, that <clears throat> it's not you're not going to be roasting for billions of years, your skin melting off your. It's not face the Raiders and, of the Lost Ark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, <laughs> uh, but not all of them. <laughs> right. Some of them think it's a violent. Uh, yeah, I mean, if we're talking about people in the pews, probably still at this point, probably the majority. I don't know. I haven't done a study on it, but I would imagine that the majority of people in the pews would still say no. I mean, right there it says fire. Yeah, you're gonna roast. You're, okay, it, just um, like the Nazis and Raiders of the Lost Ark. You're, you're gonna. And then uh, we need to talk a little bit about. We hinted at this on the last episode. Uh, Ion. Either way, Ionios. it's scary. Uh, scary. Hell is scary. It doesn't matter. What you're, it's scary. Yeah. Don't go there. Repent and believe the gospel. Yes. Ion and Ionios, either one, the fire that lasts forever, or two, uh, Ion and I, or Ionios refers to something other than forever. Now, this is an interesting. Maybe you can help me out with this. Maybe the folks at Rethinking Hell can help me out with this. But my, I've heard kind of two things, and maybe it depends on what text we're talking about. Because it is true that what text we're talking about depends on what Ion or Ionios means. Um, but like some folks would say, no, it is forever. It's forever. Yeah. It's forever and ever and ever and ever. But what that means is, because this is one of those things like those biblical passages we talked about the last time, this is one of those places that traditional people that hold the traditional view first go to and they're like, yeah, but it says forever, right? And the conditionalists would say, yeah, it says forever and it means forever. It's just that when you're dead, you're dead forever. You won't be brought back to life right. again. You're dead forever. It's a permanent punishment. And they said, in, and they would say, in the same sense, you could say about a person that receives capital punishment. Like if if Christianity is false and there's no God, and there's no afterlife, there's no heaven or hell. When you put someone to to death, right, in America, you know, they, it, they're done. They're they they're dead forever, right? Yes. And that's the harshest punishment. Well, I actually don't think that's the harshest punishment we can give, but that is thought to be the maximal punishment. I guess that you right. can give. Uh, so, but they're like, sometimes they'll say, yeah, forever means forever because you're not going to be raised again after that second death. But I have heard people talk about that. It also can mean ages and ages, or uh, it can be hyperbole or whatever. My problem with that is in passages like in Matthew 25, where the goats go one way, the sheep to the it right. It draws a parallel. And it uses, I don't know, both Right, right, and I don't want my uh, eternal life. I want to believe that that's in perpetuity and un. Well, we don't care what you want to believe. We want to care what's true. Yeah, but if, but you're making a point that demonstrates what's true. Yes, and if and if my existence is whatever view you take, you can still. I mean, the conditionalists still have their take on it. But I'm just saying, the reason why I have a problem with the long ages thing in certain contexts is because when when 
it talks about eternal life. Um, if it's just for a long, 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 long time, and then it's over for death, then how do we not know that it's just going to be a long, 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 long time, and then we're annihilated too? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. You could, you could. Now that might not be a good argument against the view, but that that is a concern. Something to consider. Yeah. And since you know, putting down to brass tacks, I've never met a Christian who thinks that we're going to go to heaven for a little while and then die. Well, a so, long while, or even a long, <laughs> even a billion years and then right, die. But, it, so, but in context like that, if you're going yeah. to do the the latter one. Right, unending in perpetuity life, and you got to do the former one. But what they'll say is, is yeah, that's right. Unending death. You're yeah, dead you're, unendingly. You're, you're gone. You, you're right. never coming back. Right. Kind of thing. Yeah. That's my point. I'm saying since we know you could go the other way on that, but since I've never met a Christian who wants to say or believes the Bible teaches that you're one day going to die in heaven, then you need to apply that same. Well, reasoning. I think that's more of a concern for the universalism because they want to say the universalist would would argue, yeah, you're. It's just for a really long time, and then you get to go to heaven. And I think that that works less mm-hmm. than you can't salvage that in passages like Matthew 25 yeah. in the way that the conditional immortality yeah. people can. Agreed. All right, so uh, let's consider some words from some folks. And I'm not trying to say that here. you're salvaging John R.W. Stott built his case for annihilationism. He wrote, The eternal existence of the impenitent in hell would be hard to reconcile with the promises of God's final victory over evil or with the apparently universalistic texts which speak of God uniting all things under Christ's headship. Uh, in Ephesians 1.10, reconciling all things to himself through Christ, Colossians 1.20, and bringing every knee to bow to Christ and every tongue to confess his lordship, Philippians 2.10-11, so that in the end, God will be all in all or everything. In other words, how are you going to say, the conditionalist might say, how are you going to say that every knee will bow and every tongue confess and God's going to renew all these things and everything if the vast majority of humanity is burning eternally, consciously in hell? But if they're consumed like a fire... Well, then he can renew all things, right? Yeah. Okay. Although that is also, some of that is what universalists will use as well, but we'll get there. Clark Pinnock echoed this same sentiment. History ends so badly under the old scenario. In what is supposed to be the victory of Christ, evil and rebellion continue in hell under conditions of burning and torturing. The New Testament says that God is going to be all in all, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, and that God is going to uh, to be making everything new, Revelation 21, 5. So, mm-hmm. so uh, there's Clark Pinnock. Uh, on the vocabulary of divine punishment, Gregory Boyd has observed the Old Testament actually has a good deal to say. Now, when I watched the Hell and Mr. Fudge thing, toward the beginning, someone's doing a documentary about the nature of hell, and, and at the beginning, Ed Fudge is taking the traditional view. Uh, this is before he, he, convinced, he was changed his mind. So he puts a tack board up, and he has the different cards up there, and one of the cards is that the traditionalists don't really think that the Old Testament has much to say about the fate of unbelievers, where uh, the conditionalist perspective would say, no, 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 it does have things to say about the fate of unbelievers. It's just that what it says lends itself to conditionalism <laughs> that they die, right? right? So Gregory Boyd says the Old Testament actually has a good deal to say about the ultimate destiny of those who resist God. Peter specifically cites the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as a pattern of how God judges the wicked. The Lord turned the inhabitants of these cities to ashes and condemned them to extinction, thus making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly, 2 Peter 2, 6. Conversely, the Lord's rescue of Lot sets a pattern for how the Lord will rescue the godly from trial, 2 Peter 2.9. We thus have precedent set in the New Testament for learning about the fate of the wicked in the Old Testament. That's Gregory Boyd. Um, I could go on. Uh, 
the New Testament confirms the same picture of the judgment. Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, Matthew 3.10 and 7.19. The Messiah will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now that's an interesting thing. What they say, that's Matthew 3.12, by the way. What they say about unquenchable, unquenchable fire, because I've heard it two ways. I've heard some people say, well, that's imagery. It's just using a hyperbole that the fire is unquenchable. Well, I've heard other people say that what unquenchable means, and I think this is the, is, is the um, this is Ed Fudge's view <laughs> based on the movie I saw, but is that the unquenchable fire means nobody's going to put it out. In other words, it's going right. to burn till it consumes everything. Right. Not that it won't ever go out, but it's unquenchable in the sense that no man is going to put it out. Yeah, and then they'll also argue is the fires of Sodom and Gomorrah still aflame, but they said that. Right. Know, so. Right. They, they went, yeah. you go there now, you won't see fire there now. Right. Um, <clears throat> but it used that on Right. The wicked will be like tares, weeds that are burned in the fire, Matthew 13, 40, or like discarded vine branches, which are gathered and thrown into the fire and they are burned, John 15, 6. All right, let's get a little Edward Fudge in here. Edward William Fudge, the author of The Fire That Consumes, wrote, quote, because this fire is not quenched or extinguished, it completely consumes what is put in it. The figure of unquenchable fire is frequent in scripture and signifies a fire that consumes Ezekiel 20, 47, and 48, reduces to nothing, Amos 5, 5, and 6, or burns up something, Matthew 3, 12. So there you have it. Those, you know, it's unquenchable in the sense that it's going to burn everything up and, uh, and all that. Um, Ionios and unquenchable fire. This is Steve Gregg. In fact, various meanings in different contexts can be effectively uh, defended, including long-lasting, age-enduring, pertaining to... Uh, or the end of the age, and of divine origin and character. The New Testament makes reference to Ionios fire three times. In Matthew 18, 8, Jesus described the fires of Gehenna by this term, and he later spoke of Ion Ionios fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. If it be conceded that both passages speak of the final judgment of the lost in hell, this nonetheless tells us nothing of eternal torment there. In fact, the only other occurrence of the term Ionios fire is in Jude 7, which uses the term to describe the fire that came from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. In that case, such a description neither conveys the notion of unendingness, since the fire is not still burning in Sodom, nor of lasting torment, since there is no reason to assume that the fires of Sodom did not quickly kill the inhabitants, ending their torment. The expression unquenchable and eternal, therefore, when added to the generic image of fire, do not add to our knowledge of the subjective experience of those suffering its violence. For all we know, eternal and unquenchable fires burn up their victims as readily as do any other fires, death, destruction, and all that. Anything to add to Steve Gregg's words there? No, I mean, he pretty... Which is, you know, it's like, okay, Steve, why don't you believe this? <laughs> you know, why aren't you a firmly committed... <clears throat> And that's what they're asking me anyway. So Yeah. Last thing on this yeah. point. Biblical data that indicates annihilationism or annihilation. Other common words used in scripture in referring, referring to the doom of the lost include destruction, uh, being consumed, withering, fading, melting away, being no more, vanishing like smoke, among others. John Winham uh, has helpfully summarized the results of this extensive research into the various terms used in the New Testament in speaking of the judgment of the lost. He wrote, I found 264 references to the fate of the lost. It is a terrible catalog, giving most solemn warning, yet in all but one of the 264 references, there is not a word about unending torment, and very many of them, in their natural sense, clearly refer to destruction. Now, one thing, I, thing that, to, if I'm going to make the conditionalist case, uh, actually, I don't even know if this comes into it, but if if, as a con if I was a conditionalist wanting to uh, do away, like 
deal with Mark 9 and places like that where Jesus uses the word Gehenna, it should be mentioned that if we were going to be like the Bible is to be taken literally and means what it says, it, it, then we would have to put on the table as a live possibility that when Jesus says, you people that aren't listening to what I'm saying, you're going to go to Gehenna. You're going to, you're, who's going to prevent you Pharisees from being cast into Gehenna? Uh, that he's talking about Gehenna, like the valley. Yeah. You know, that, that, that when the destruction of the temple comes, you're going to be cast into Gehenna and burn there. You know, that that is a live possibility, some would say. Okay. All right. So there's other biblical data I could go through, but I've just read a bunch of data. We don't have to carry all their water. Okay. Yeah. They, <laughs> yeah. they can, I mean, Romans 2, 7. Uh, yeah. Okay. Romans 2, 7. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality yeah. Eternal life. In other words, that will be. It's something to be pursued. It's not something that you inherently possess. And we can't, as apologists who love First Corinthians fifteen, we can't mis- we can't forget to say First Corinthians fifteen fifty three through fifty four. Right. For this uh, perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. Right. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this uh, mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saving that is written: death is swallowed up in right. victory. Right. And. That does not apply to unbelievers. They're not getting this incorruptible resurrection body in the same way that the believers are. Yeah. Um, that, that just strikes me as weird. But what about the benefits of the conditionalist view? And I have something to say about myself when I answer this. Benefits of the conditionalist view, it makes sense in a straightforward, plain reading of the text of biblical indications that the unregenerate will die. Now, a couple of people said to me, Okay, that, and these were annihilationists or conditionalists who were saying this, like, the whole thing was great, but somewhere in there you said that, like, the traditionalist view made sense of the plain reading of some texts. We have gone off uh, repeatedly, and new listeners to the show wouldn't know this, yeah. we have gone off about the plain reading of the text, yeah. right? Because the plain reading of the text, as we've already stated on this episode, can run you into an exegetical fallacy wall. Right. And so you don't want to do that. What I'm trying to do is to show what these people say about their own perspective. And there are traditionalists who say, this makes sense of a straightforward reading of certain texts. There are also conditionalists who I have as the first bullet point will say, this makes sense of the straightforward reading of the text, right. like somebody's gonna the word say, die, for example. Revelation 20, 10, and, and uh, so on about... Well, yeah, that's because both both camps have verses. will say... These ver- this our view makes sense of the plain reading of certain texts. Right. Right. What I'm trying to do is to show don't do that because guess what? As we already said on this show, any position that does that will make a mistake somewhere. Right. And this is because you're going to use proof texts from different genres of literature. Yes. And 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 you've got to hash those out. And so the manly Chris Date, who is manly enough to debate Al Mohler, and um, I, I I I told him he should debate. Uh, what were the, re- recasting Anakin Ministries because it's the easiest win you'll ever get because uh, unlike Al Mohler, they're not serious. But uh, you listen to their debates and I hand it to Chris that he'll win every debate he has on this subject because he knows this thing in and out. Um, the way that they address certain of the plain reading texts of the um, traditionalist view is they'll say things like, well, the unending torment was for Satan and his demons anyway. And just because it later says that also death and Hades were all the 
people are, are thrown into that same lake of fire, it doesn't say that they'll be tormented when they're right. thrown in the lake of fire. Just And I saw some weird things that I, I have questioned about because they were trying to also say that, that um, I think I was reading it on Rethinking Hell about, but they don't even believe that the unending torment for um, Satan and his demons are forever. Well, they'd say, look, this is in a book that it's is apocalyptic and has all that. kinds of imagery right. uh, in it. But yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, but there again, imagery. And please does, know we're painting with broad brush. Right. There are different kinds yeah. of conditionalists. Imagery still needs to be understood. It's still communicating something behind the image, you know. Well, so. And people like the Silva might say that's just all honor shame language. The smoke yeah. of their torment will ascend forever because everybody's always going to know, yeah. you know. Yeah, but you're right. They got some things that yeah. we'd like to see them answer more publicly. I mean, right. they have answered them, but I'd yeah. like to see it. Yeah. See, that's why I told them I've still got to work through all of these things. You know, I, I haven't sat down. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm not a systematic theologian um, because the Bible doesn't cooperate much with systematic theology beyond the ancient creed. So I've got to work through this. How does it fit with my whole exegetical enterprise with the Book of Revelation? Um, and I, I get that undying, you know, worms oh, that never die. Oh, and, and this, this, this is a good place to say about before we move off of conditionalism that um, one of the things I said a while ago, some of these things are generally true about conditionalists. A couple of them are not true of all conditionalists. One of those things is the the kind of soul sleep idea, the physicalism that that right. you, well, it's not soul sleep, the physicalism that you are just your body and that there's not a substance dualism, it's a substance monism, so that people that are dead now are just dead. And then when they're resurrected, they'll they'll be alive again, but yeah. they're not in an intermediate state right now. And I, I'm sure that for people that have never heard of that view before, there are certain proof texts that jump to mind and they have responses for those proof texts. I just asked Nick Quint to give me, uh, recommend me a book and I read the uh is it Joel Green, John Green, Joel B. Green, Joel Green. Um, Body, Soul, and something. Yeah. And anyway, uh, I read the book, and I enjoyed the book, and he did make a decent case for uh, so how you could read the New Testament yeah. or the Bible from a substance monism perspective, that you don't, have, there is no soul, that we're just physical and all that. But uh, it didn't It didn't convince me, and I'll tell you yeah, why. It doesn't really convince quickly. you that you can't read it. Dualist Number dualist. one, yeah, I still think that you can read it from a substance dualist perspective, right. but on but not only do I think that, so I think those just like they think those texts count in their favor, I think they count in my favor. But on top of that, I, it would have more force if we didn't already have system dependent beliefs about spiritual beings like God the Father and angels and demons and all those kind of things. That those things, like if you showed me there's nothing like that at all, I'd be like, oh, okay. But since any Christian, any Orthodox evangelical will believe that those things exist already well then we already have evidence of certain spiritual beings and corporeal beings and then yeah and then the the big clincher for me is i kept waiting for joel green i thought it was a great book he's a great scholar i'm sure but but i kept waiting he said he was going to answer for me the uh the continuation of identity, identity issue yeah. where how is it that if i die and this body decays and then i'm resurrected later how is that not a copy of me it seems like there needs to be a continued identity that is sustained that then will be in that resurrection body. And people have tried to deal with this for a long time. He says, I'm going to deal with that in this book. And he deals with it like on the last page of the book. And basically, if I understood him right, number one says, look, there's a lot of mysterious stuff. You know, <laughs> you get punched the mystery. Yeah. And then he says something about our identity being, being bound up in Christ. And so because our identity is bound up in Christ, 
our identity can can then be back in the resurrection Free body. But then what my but then that just leads me to think, okay, well if if this what is this identity that's me that can be transferred between persons if not a soul. I mean, that sounds very much like what we mean right. when we say a soul. So I'm, I've still got those problems that I'm unconvinced of this physicalism. I'm yeah. still happily a substance dualist. If yes. you are, give me a reason, you know, throw me another book. I'll, I'll happily read it because I'm not afraid to read widely on these things. Uh, but so anyway, it makes sense, makes sense of degrees of judgment, the conditionalists would say. A lot of traditionalists I run into, some of them would say, well, yeah, there are going to be degrees of suffering and hell, but most of them will just don't really know what to do with the passages that seem to indicate it'll be better for you than it will be for them and that sort of thing. Right. And uh, you get paid back each to what you, you know, yeah. com uh, comparable to what, what you, you sow, what you, you know, you, you yeah. reap what you sow. And, yeah. um, and I, I've heard the answers. Like one answer I've heard is uh, from a traditionalist perspective is to say, well, if you are an alcoholic, you're going to suffer in a way that other people won't in hell because you'll long for alcohol and never have it satisfied. Or, well, I've, you know, I've also heard exactly. that, you know, your flames will just be a little bit... You'll be a little better. hotter. Yeah. Crank for, it up. For Hitler than it will be for an Ethiopian who... who and and I've heard people say, well, just grit their teeth and be like, yeah, maybe there's a little bit of a Dantos Inferno type you know, different regions of hell yeah. and, and some place is going to be hotter. I'm not going to laugh at these views. That, but the conditionalist thinks that he's got a apparatus to make sense of that. Well, what they would say would be that they could posit one theory I think I've heard um, is the length of suffering before annihilation. Sure. Yeah. Uh, okay, matchless standards of justice from the law of Moses. Okay, so if, if, the, if, if the biblical standard for justice is eye for eye justice... And we probably did another show on, well, what do you do with Jesus saying you've heard it said? Well, Jesus, my answer to that is Jesus is not in conflict with the Old Testament. What Jesus, is, and I know that Peter Enns would not agree or whoever it is that you're reading that. Was it Greg Boyd or Peter Enns? Greg Boyd. Greg, Greg Boyd. You know, he, I think you did say he does kind of make it. He goes like, all in on that. Yeah, you know, like, Jesus yeah, is changing Jesus, things. Yeah. Okay. Our, but if Jesus is Yahweh, okay, I, I don't think Jesus is... is uh, Conflicting with, there's very little well, that Jesus say, says. I mean, it's well to be fair to boy, he nuanced it a little bit differently. Okay. But anyway, I only know what you've told me. So, but but the, th the point is, you only Jesus know as well as I've explained. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Jesus is not in conflict with Yahweh. Uh, so what is he saying? And there's very little that Jesus ever says that's not already said in the Old Testament. That would shock some people. But I think what he's saying is interpersonally, you don't have, you can show mercy. You don't have to take them to the courts. Yeah. But if they go to the courts, uh, a one-to-one -one justice is justice. You know, eye mm -hmm. for eye justice, that sort of thing is justice. And this courts should dispense such justice. But you don't have to drag uh, people before the courts. It's my my understanding of it. But conditionalism is that justice, and they would say it does have that one-to-one -one ratio. You will suffer commensurate to your crimes, and then you'll die. Yeah. Right. Okay. So those and are the, in the Old Testament. If you did certain, <coughs> if you violated certain laws, you die. Right. And die means die, you know. Okay, now we're not going to spend as much time on the universal reconciliation uh, view. Uh, universal well, reconciliation. Well, you never got to the the the, the clincher text for them. The you know. Oh yeah, uh, Luke twelve four and Matthew what is it ten something. Uh, but um, do not fear them which can kill the body, but after that have no more that they can do. Uh, fear him who can kill or destroy both body and soul in hell. Yeah. Uh, that is like one of the most eyebrow-raising texts because it seems to draw a one-to-one -one ratio between uh, the death of the body, which we know what that is. Nobody's confused about what the death of the body is right. and the death of the soul in hell. So if the body and the soul is dead, 
That's and, complete non-existence is what, right. you, is, is so, what the conditionalist would say. That's, so even if you're not a monist, even if you're a dualist like Braxton and me, I'm a dualist, uh, they would say, look, it's, it's total annihilation. It's not just physical death. Your substance dualist soul is gone completely too. Yeah. Dead in hell because that's what hell does. It destroys it completely. So that's kind of their. So whenever somebody brings up that verse from the traditionalist view, it gets the conditional. I will say, if you're, excited, a like, yeah, if, you're, verse, if you're a conditionalist, yeah. If you're a conditionalist out there and you want to make somebody stop in their tracks and consider your position, read them that verse. Yeah. And uh, they'll do well, it. Well, usually the traditionalists will read that verse and then. And they then think the, it's in favor. Yeah, and the conditional immortality person will seize upon that moment and say, ah. Yeah, uh, Matthew ten twenty eight is that right? Yeah, because okay. uh, number one, yeah. that's there's nothing, there's nothing metaphorical okay. going on there. But we got It's not in an apocalyptic book like mm -hmm. Revelation. I mean, it's Jesus saying this to a guy, right? You know. Okay, we got to move on. So the Christian universalism or uh, universal reconciliation, evangelical universalism, these are all terms for it. Primary texts: Second um, Corinthians five nineteen, Second Corinthians four four. Um, we'll talk about some other texts. Notable advocates, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, William Law, George MacDonald. I uh, just read two books by George MacDonald, The Princess and the Goblin and uh, Fantasties. Uh, Hannah Whitehall-Smith, uh, F.W. Farrar, William Barclay, Jacques Ellul, Thomas Talbot, Rob Bell, apparently, but not certainly. <laughs> so uh, these are all these are all people that uh, might be Christian universalists. Um, examining Christian universalism, God loves everyone and wants everyone to be saved. Jesus atoned for everyone, and it was applied to everyone. Okay, well, so far I'm with them. Okay, <laughs> right. Uh, but this is why. See, like you know how the Calvinists will sometimes say to us. If you believe in universal atonement, like if you believe that there is not a limited atonement, an unlimited atonement, then you're a universalist. And the and we're like, no. But the Christian universalists are like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the guy who wrote The Shack, what's yeah. his name? Yeah. Uh, um, uh, I could have told you if you hadn't asked me. Okay. Anyway, is it William Paul Young? Or, that's not right. Um, um, I don't know. Um, the guy who wrote The Shack, he's like, um, Wade Burleson was saying that he's, I mean, like Calvinist. And he's like, yeah, he, he agrees the exact same thing, uh, except for limited atonement. He's just like, God has elected everybody. God has, uh, the, the, the atonement is not a provision conditioned upon you. Receiving he takes it. a okay. Calvinist paradigm, it applies it to everyone. Right. Yeah. He's like, yeah, unconditional election of everybody. Okay. Limited atonement is limited to everybody. <laughs> you know. Now there it's here, limited only to every single person in different. Right. <laughs> you know. There is no reason death must prevent future repentance. Now, this is an interesting thing. So their thing is, look, uh, God loves us enough that that death doesn't have to be this arbitrary line for God beyond which he can't save you anymore. And I've actually heard them say things like, um, you know, oh well, uh you know, that are, they're mocking our position and saying, oh, well, God wants us to sit, why, choose life that you will live, you and your descendants. Why do you choose death? I, I take no pleasure willing, in the yeah, death of the wicked. Yeah, yeah, I'm willing that none should perish. And then you die and you're like, well, uh, that's too bad for you. <laughs> See you later, you know. Yeah. Uh, where we would say, you know, you plug, God is not just all loving, he's also all just. And if you plug in all justice and all love, there are some parameters to that justice. Right. Okay? Um, Which includes punishment. Yeah. 
so uh, another position I want to take, or another reason, is as long as there is a hell and people die, death still has its victory and its sting. How can it be that death will have no more sting if millions of people are being stung with the worst kind of death sting for all eternity, right. you know, in hell. That's their position. I hope you notice the vigor with which I'm arguing for this position, and yet I am happy to tell you this is not my position. What I'm happy to say is at least convincing. <laughs> right, it's at least convincing. I think this is absolutely not. But we're tenable. trying to be fair. But I'm trying to be fair to each position and argue fervently for it so that you get a taste of it, all right? Yeah. Taste and see that universalism is incorrect. All right. Um, Anything else you want to say about that? Death has its no sting. And well, all yeah. For who? <laughs> for for who does death have no sting? The right. people in Christ, because Christ is the resurrection, and those in Christ are going to be the ones who are raised. And that for them, for the for those in Christ, it has no sting because Jesus defeated death, and so therefore death is defeated for all those who are in Jesus. Yeah, that's my response to that. And yes, you have to plug in the justice factor. Yeah, now they, they uh, I have a bunch of texts here that they'll use in defense, um, but most of these texts have to do with showing that God is merciful, God is loving. Right, all and these that kind you have this life to, to right. seize upon. <laughs> but that. like Psalm 103 8, Psalm 136 1, Psalm 145 8, Psalm 35, um, those show that he's mercy. He's that he merciful, exhausted his wrath on gracious, Christ on the cross. Slow to anger. Yeah. That he exhausted his wrath on Jesus at the cross. Uh, Yes, I'm a firm Christus victor, but I do have a positional penal substitutionary atonement aspect to that. Nobody cares. Right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, well, people who try to get rid of all forms yeah, of yeah. get over yourselves. Yeah. Um, no offense. Uh, I'm all about Christus victor. That's the main thing. But there is a penal substitution. And, yes, all that wrath was exhausted on Jesus for those who are in Christ, and you're in Christ by faith. So if you're not in Christ by faith, if you reject that, well, your condemnation remains because you don't have the provision of Christ covering your wickedness. So your wickedness has to be punished. So they'll also use Jonah 4.2. I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. And I'll say, look, we already know that something kind of like what we're saying has kind of happened already, you know, um, so but what the, the people heck? Of Nineveh repented. Still. <laughs> right, the people right, right. Of repented. Well, yeah, yeah, and I guess and they repented to, in this to life. help to help yeah. out more. They would need for God's wrath to already be falling on Nineveh, and then those people repent, right? Right. <laughs> no, no, and they repented in this lifetime, yeah. right? Right. It, it wasn't God going, you know. Anyway. So Micah seven eighteen through nineteen. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, love suffers long and is kind, endures all, never fails. Yeah. So you think that God's not even as loving as you? Like, do you want, like you said on the last broadcast, Dr. Pritchett, you don't want Richard Dawkins to go to hell. You want him to repent and be saved. Mm -hmm. And of course, we would say God wants that too, but 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 why? Why can't God just, are you love, more loving than God that you would give him a pass? Why why doesn't God give I him a pass? I didn't say I'd give him a pass. I never yeah. said I'd give Richard you Dawkins You wouldn't give Richard Dawkins a pass? No, because that would mean God isn't just. Right. And that's where we said on the last three episodes, you've got to not only plug in love, but also justice. Yes, because if God is just going to, you know, God could, in his forbearance, pass over sins previously committed because he was looking forward to satisfying his wrath and justice at the cross, right? Mm -hmm. But if God just 
Because God had to present Jesus in order to be just, not just justified, but to be just because he did pass over sins previously committed. You can't just let that go forever and ever and ever. And if God does not execute justice upon the wicked, then God himself is indifferent to he's wicked. He's not maximally just, right? And he's not a maximum. And I would argue that he's wicked. If, he, if he's just indifferent to wicked, he's like, well, I'll just get over it and yeah. just let that go unpunished and it's okay to be wicked. Okay, then that makes down. God wicked. Calm down. Nobody's okay. saying that. Richard Dawkins well, is going no, to heaven. You, yeah, but we, all, we all know that if he doesn't repent, he's going to hell. Right, and I'm saying I, I don't, and, and, and he should. Yeah. I don't want him to. I don't think God wants him to. But he should if justice is to be carried that out. That is fair to because, say. Because otherwise all right, God Psalm 145, be 9, the Lord is okay. good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. The tender mercies are over all his works. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, we agree. He's merciful. You can repent. He didn't have to give you an op- option That's to right. repent, right? Um, but he's all loving, so he did. Uh, Luke 6, 35 through 36, he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be, he, therefore be merciful just as your father also is merciful. He's even kind and, and to people that aren't thankful. That, now, that that's one of their passages. Now, that, so look, they're not even thankful. They don't even care, but yet he's merciful to them. Yeah. So how do you square that? It's called common grace. All right, John 3, 16, we've already talked about God's universal atonement, and basically they give a bunch of texts that Calvinists, uh, or that... Uh, well, I mean, in Christ, or in Adam all die, in Christ all made alive, you know. Uh, through one man's disobedience, brought yeah, condemnation, come up. Right. Uh, they use all the texts that... that non-Calvinists use against Calvinists. Right. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the yeah, world. If, but he if, himself is the propitiation for ours, not ours only. Right. Yeah. So they have a whole list of tests like Right, like and that. if you... You know, it's like what I talk to my Calvinist friends about. I mean, if you want to ignore every other verse in the Bible, you know, because everyone says, well, the full counsel of God, the full counsel of God. Well, yeah. And when you go to the full counsel of God and you you take in all of the data and you plug in the right categories that make sense in the ancient world, not necessarily the modern world, not necessarily the 16th century world, uh, you get a coherent scripture. Yeah. From start to finish. Now let me Which now let me now be, let's uh, now this. determine let's now move on to the final segment, okay. which is hell and evangelism. Now, let me call bull on both <laughs> camps of the traditional and the conditional camp. Right. Okay, this is where right. I make no friends. I have heard it said from traditionalists, yeah, okay, conditionalism can't be true because if it's true, not a lot of people will get saved because we're not scaring enough people into heaven. Okay, well, first of all, that's a logical fallacy. You don't decide what's true based on what would be practical, right? Okay, secondly, uh, that's not necessarily true because, and I could read it, but I probably won't, but Greg, Gregory Boyd's father, there's a book on this. Uh, I don't remember what it's called, but there's a book on this where he's writing letters with his father, and his father ultimately comes to believe because he realizes you don't have to believe in eternal conscious torment. And there are a lot of people out there who are not Christians today because whether it's true or not, okay, they can't imagine, it doesn't make, they don't, they don't think that what we're saying about God being a loving God makes sense of eternal conscious torment. So like your view doesn't make sense because of this hell thing. And so if they come to understand that it could be conditionalism, many of them uh, become Christians. We have evidence of this. Yeah. So I call bull on the traditionalists that that has to be the case. I also call bull on the conditionalists because the conditionalists will sometimes sloppily say, not all of them, I don't know that Chris Taze ever said, more people would get saved if we stopped teaching 
the eternal conscious torment, and only taught conditionalism. I call bull for two reasons. One thing, I don't think you can demonstrate that. And secondly, a whole lot of people come to Christ because they don't want to go to hell. And now, Jesus wasn't opposed to scaring people right, to hell to right. follow him. Either. Now, here's the thing about that. Somebody says, to, and here's where I'm going to go off through. We've made everybody happy. I'm ruining it for us, okay? Right. Are you Good. okay with this? Are you uh, in it with me? Of course. Is Neil in it, it with me? It wouldn't be our show. So here's, here's the thing is I have had people say to me, well, people shouldn't get saved because they don't want to go to hell. People should get saved because they love Jesus or whatever. Okay, when I first saw my wife, I do not believe in love at first sight. I think that is a fiction. If you believe in it, great. I think we have a word for what you experienced, and it's lust, okay? But um, when I first saw my wife, I was sitting in the student lounge at Middle Tennessee State University. And it was lust. I looked sight. over at her, and I saw her, and I thought, uh, she is gorgeous. I'm going to go talk to her. And in a rare moment of courage in my adolescent days, I went and I talked to her, and, uh, and I got to know her. The thing that first caused me to come over there, according to God's design, was physical attraction. But what kept me there was also physical attraction, but also <laughs> also I learned to love her. Yeah. But the love came after I got to know her. And I think there are a number of people that come to Christ because of they don't want to go to hell or whatever, but they learn to love Jesus. But people aren't in love with Jesus necessarily from day one. And I think that the motivation that not to go to hell is a fine motivation and I don't understand how people get around that, except that they want to sound, give all this bomb fog. Yeah, they were trying you know, to use judgment and hell and everything. And then the New Testament was using judgment. Like, what's the point of being breathing it up? Right. right. As a motivator. Yeah. Um, so warnings and threats are, are, are motivational. So <laughs> I call bull on both. All right? I also want to call. There are some people that won't get saved because of traditionalism. There are some people that won't get saved because of conditionalism. There are people that will and people that will. That's. Right. It's just the nature and, and, of reality. And, and, and none of that has anything to do with whether, whether or not it's true. It's right? true. Right. Okay, so bullet point number one, we should not decide doctrinal questions based on pragmatics, right? Right. Uh, bullet point two, it is noteworthy that the Apostle Paul did not describe uh, hell in his, pre or the apostles did not describe hell in their preaching, though they occasionally mentioned judgment. We covered that on the last show. Judgment At the out. same time, those they were trying to evangelize already, and, and also we should say, we don't have a record of them doing that. Right. doesn't mean they didn't do it. If Jesus said it, I'm sure that they echoed Jesus at some point. But we just don't. We can't say that conclusively because right. it's not in the Bible. All right. At the same time, those they were trying to evangelize already believed in a somewhat hellish afterlife. Right. So it's one thing to tell people they should believe today who may not know Christian doctrine about hell. But these people were a were aware because one thing that that we pretty well know now is there were a lot of views on a lot of things right. in the first century and, Mediterranean and, and world. I always tell people when you why wasn't Paul and and talking about hell to the Gentiles and I'm like okay well think about it they already thought they were going down there to hang out with James Woods with the blue right plane they already believed in a already, place. oh our afterlife is going to be miserable <laughs> thanks what else grass yeah. is green you don't you need know? to do <laughs> the theology. Then right. that you do now, right? They already assumed that their afterlife. If they believed it, the Greeks that believed in an afterlife, not all of them did, but the ones that did already assumed it was going to be miserable unless you were somehow made uh, demigod. So wrath uh, and 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 um, judgment has to do with the honor shame thing too. It's all about shame. You don't want to. If the one true God is the God that created everything, if that God's real, you don't want to be shamed by that deity you don't want to be dishonored and wrath 
wrath really, going back to Aristotle, has to do with having been slighted by uh, somebody right. lesser uh, orgate. So, uh, so th that really is more about you don't want to dishonor this creator God, and yes. that you're going to be shamed if you at judgment yes. for having dishonored it. So yes. that's why you don't see, oh, you're going to burn and your face is going to melt off and all this other stuff, and then you'll either be annihilated or no, your face will just keep melting off for all yeah. time. You don't hear that yeah. in the preaching because to, to to tell a Greek who believed in an afterlife is going to stink already believed it. So. All three views present a horrible view of hell that still serves as a strong motivation to trust Jesus. So the fact that to say that if you have one or the other, it's not going to be motivating enough. They're all horrible. All three views. Hell is hell. hell. Whatever yeah. is scary. And even, even these universal evangelical universalists say, well, while you're there, it's horrible. Right? Now, let me so tell everyone you, everyone says it's horrible. Now, let me tell you how I, preach this. And I talked to one guy from Rethinking Hell that thought this was great. Um, I've talked to other people on both sides of the fence that think this is fence sitting and is, is cowardly. It's not cowardly. What it is, is I want to be as accurate to biblical truth as I possibly can be. Right. So here's what I do. And I do think you can preach hell. I'm not with these people that say you should never preach hell. You don't have to preach. I'm sorry. It's in the Bible and it's, uh, a, it, People should know. I'm the kind of practical person that if someone's about to step in a hole, I don't think there's anything wrong with telling them. There's you don't just have to say, look, this nice field over here is a wonderful place to walk. No, there's a hole there, dummy. You're about to step in a hole, right? right? There's nothing wrong with that, okay? So um, here's, here's how I think you can preach it. If you're going to preach on hell, you can say something like, look, here's what Jesus says about hell in Mark chapter 9. And tell them. Tell them that, I mean, read the text. Just let the text speak for itself. Say Fire, you know, uh, cut off your arm not to go there. Gouge out your eye not to go there. This is what Jesus says. Now, you might say to me, but, and this is what I say when I, when I appreciate it. You might say to me, but yeah, but that might be imagery or metaphor or poetic language or something like that. You're absolutely right. It might be. It might, it, it, you say, yeah, it might not be forever. Yeah, it might not. But here's one thing that we know for sure, according to what Jesus was saying here. Whatever hell is, you don't want to go to hell. Right Now, here's the thing that I think is responsible about that. I have given you Jesus' words, and anyone who thinks I'm irresponsible for giving you what Jesus says about it needs right. to just repent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, I have given the caveat that this is somewhat open to interpretation. But what is not open to interpretation is that you do not want to go there. It's right? bad. I think that is a fair approach to this thing. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, well, and that's the thing. You can just And then if somebody asks me questions afterwards, right. I go into all you this stuff. You can just stuff. leave if if you're like me an agnostic about this. Mm -hmm. I just leave it where the text leaves it, and I don't even have to caveat it. I just this what the text says well, and move on. Yeah. Jesus says this about hell and it's bad. <laughs> and Jesus says that and you know, there's worms that never die well, and okay. fires that will be quenched and I don't have to I don't have to deconstruct. Well, I well, anything. but here's the thing though. We want to be good uh expository if we're talking about preaching we want to be good expository preachers and part of that is trying to bring our audience to the level of understanding of what's being said what we that the people the standing audience, there right. listening would have understood yeah. so i do think it's okay to say to grant that yes there are other things to consider here um and, and then be available to answer those questions afterwards and yeah. i you know i do that i was just in uh canada you know, the other day somebody asked me about help told them basically in much shorter form, everything we've said in these two videos. And the great thing is, now that we have these two videos, I can actually recommend go, go these two on, yeah, videos. Go watch that video. 
So, or you can pay $35 and take his class and get like these videos plus hours and hours and hours of him talking about this. Yeah, doesn't that sound lovely? Um, now, anything else you want to say about hell? It's bad and scary, and whatever your view is, um, you need to repent and believe the gospel if you're not a Christian because you don't want to go to hell. Honestly, hell is real. And um, I think that the... Uh, Evangelical universalism sounds like something I wish was true, just not very compelling. Yeah, it's like J.I. Packer. And said then, yeah, and then the other, yeah, I agree with Packer. And then on the <laughs> other two views, I really don't have a, I'm agnostic and willing to think about it some more. Yeah, so if you don't and it's know not word, something to divide over. Let's get that clear. Yeah, I agree. Okay. If you, if you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, um, the Bible teaches that you need to repent of your sin. That means to turn from your life without Jesus. Uh, we're all sinners. It's not that you're a bad person from a human perspective. You may be morally and ethically better than anyone who watches this podcast or attends a church on Sunday anywhere in the world. That's not what it's about. We're all sinners and we need Jesus. And you, the Bible teaches that you're to repent, to trust him. And I think it's appropriate. I don't think that saying a series of words makes you a Christian, but I think it's appropriate to, uh, if that's, if that's uh, where you're at, to tell the Lord that you know you're a sinner. Pray to him and tell him that you know you're a sinner and tell him that you're ready to turn from your sin and you want to become one of his followers and then uh, go to a local church, start attending, serving the Lord. And because it's not a one and done thing, it's not an easy believism. It, it's not doing good works that makes you saved, but it's doing good works that demonstrates you were saved. And we want you to start serving the Lord and for the rest of your life, be one of his disciples. Amen. So if you want to talk to us about that, you can contact us. You can contact us by, by uh, well, contact at trinitysem.edu, trinitysem.edu. If you'd like to talk to us about becoming a student at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, we would love for you to do that at trinitysem.edu. If you'd like to learn informally, you can visit my website, braxtonhunter.com. There's some Pritchett on there too. Or you can go to... Uh, uh, youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. I've tried to get YouTube to change it. They won't. Yeah. But youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. And I've just added eight debates that we've had on a debates right. playlist, including Dr. Pritchett's debate with Leighton Flowers. Yes. And if you would like to I mean, even he learn. He and Leighton Flowers with Regurgitating Anakin Ministries. Right. And you can also continue learning beyond the fun of Trinity Radio with the Trinity Commission. Trinity Commission consists of Steve Gregg and the Narrow Path which is probably the most educational of all these programs, but the most resources of any single ministry that I Without know question. Yeah. Uh, the, the entire Bible verse-by-verse -verse commentary is available at the narrow path dot something. Um, then you have dot com. The, dot com. And then you have the Bible Growdown. Um, exciting show. They cover almost all the topics you want covered and all the topics you never thought you wanted covered. You want to hear about Nephilim? You want yeah. to hear about Flat Earth Theory? Right. I was on that show. Yeah. Um, I wanted to show. find a local advocate for Flat Earth Theory, so they got Dr. Pritchett. <laughs> I'm not an advocate. <laughs> I'm an advocate for the... You're agents. a Flat Earther who believes in, in universal reconciliation. Yeah, thank you. That's, none of that sentence is... Everything you just said was wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Then... Uh, the Bible Brown is right. awesome. And then, of course, of course, the, the, I mean, just the quintessential Trinity Commission guy, Leighton Flowers, whom all of us wish we had as audience. Um, so if you, if but we're getting, yeah, we're, we're trying. One by one. Uh, <laughs> uh, Leighton Flowers and Soteriology 101, um, uh, 
outstanding stuff if you want to talk about soteriology and Calvinism and, and all of that. Uh, all of us have Facebook pages. All of us have Facebook groups. And you can also reach yeah. us there if you want to ask us A couple of things. It's been really nice for those of you who have gone and given us a good review on iTunes. Yeah. Please go do that at the Trinity Radio um, iTunes. Just go Trinity Radio, whatever. Find the little triangle. You know, we're not we're not like part of the Illuminati or anything like that. But the fact that I said that will make some people think we are. But go go there and give us a nice review. Uh, hopefully, you'll give us a good rating. And then also, if you'll go subscribe to the YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash/BraxtonHunter. Even if you listen to the show on the audio format and not the video, it really helps us out in terms of search results. If you'll go over there to the YouTube channel and just click subscribe. Yep. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and click that thumbs up and maybe leave us a nice comment. We love that. We try to respond to all of them. And He uh, tries to. I don't care. Do you remember us on the Patreon account? I'm not going to go off about it, but five bucks a day. I mean, hey, here's what you can do. Think of how many years you've been in the ministry and give us five bucks for every year you've been in the ministry. There how about go. that? And um, so say I'm not in the ministry. Right. <laughs> well, and say goodbye go. to Neil. This will be oh. his last meal. Thank you.